We have the privilege uh, once again to take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, and we'll be, begin with verse 21 today. Uh, we are going to sort of take the crucifixion and divide it into two parts. It's, it was too much to handle in one week. So today we'll look at Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. Let me back up to verse 20 if I could. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would have... Uh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we know that you know us even better than we know ourselves. Lord, you know the things that are in our minds. You know the things that we have been living with this week and even the things that we have gone through this morning and, and the temptation that could be there, Lord, for our minds to be in any number of places except here. But God, I pray that you would give us perseverance and an ability to concentrate upon your word this morning, not just to quickly breeze over it, but to to meditate, to, to, to dwell, to abide in you this morning. So Lord, I, I pray uh, for that, but I also pray for the work of your Spirit, Lord, to work in our hearts, uh, especially, Father, our desires, that we might honor you, that we might hear from you this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, in some ways, I, I wonder if we have become too, uh, or have become desensitized to violence and, and death. I, I know that sounds like a very morbid thing maybe to start out a sermon with, but, you know, I, I just wonder. It just, as you listen to the news or, or read it, however you get your news, uh, you, you hear of wars, you, you hear of violence, riots, murders, all kinds of things that it just seems like a, a, the, the worse, the, the, the happier the news media outlets seem to be. 
And, and not only that, but, but even when we sit down just to be entertained and just sort of relax in the evening, you know, we might turn on a movie and watch a good murder mystery or an action movie or something like that. And here again, you see violence and, and you see murder. And, and I believe that it's possible to go so far as to say that we, we read or we view scenes of real violence as a normal part of our daily lives. I don't think that's unfair to say that, that we see that as a regular part of our life. For us, as human beings, violence and death are so routine that I think it is easy for us to forget that actually God created a world without those things. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if I said to you, I could just like wave my hand, and now the world that you go out into, there would be no violence, and there would be no death, it would be a weird experience for all of us, would it not? Because we're just so used to that. Um, but it wasn't until sin entered the world that both violence and death came to be known to us and to become known so intimately. And, and I want us to keep that in mind this morning as we think about the crucifixion of Christ. Because for us as Christians, crosses, crucifixions, death are so much a part of our landscape that, that we may not even see them, let alone be moved by them. We may read this account of Christ and what he went through and go, yeah, and that's about it. We're no longer moved by the passion of our Savior. And so as Christians, we must guard ourselves against being desensitized against what Christ has gone through. Christ's passion, his suffering, his, his death was very real. His physical sufferings have always been and will remain a window through which we can see his heart, through which we can see the heart of God for his people. And, and this is what I hope you'll we'll see this morning as we consider what the crucifixion reveals to us about Christ. There's a number of things the crucifixion reveals to us. First of all, it reveals to us God's or Christ's love. It reveals to us Christ's love. Jesus' final road to the cross, which is oftentimes called the Via Della Rosa, the, the, the road of sorrows, the road of, of suffering, is described in verses 21 and 22. And as they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, Marches like this in Jesus' day were about as common as funeral processions are for us in our day. You know, we see that. We don't think that that is unusual. We don't see it every day, but, but we see it often enough that we recognize a funeral procession when, when we see it. And, and as Jesus is being led to be executed, uh, he would have been walking in the center of four Roman soldiers. And, and the crossbeam would have been uh, put on his shoulders. It probably would have weighed, I would say probably from what I read, maybe up to 100 pounds, which, you know, is a, a, a fair amount of weight. But then you take that and you couple that with the fact that Christ had just 
been whipped, that his shoulders on which he was carrying the crossbeam, those shoulders had been ripped open by the whip of, of bones and, and metal that, that was in it. Christ had lost a lot of blood. And so here is this shell of a man, I guess you would say, carrying this beam, walking between these four soldiers. And out in front of them would have been an officer who would have been carrying a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He, he put on there what the charges were that were against him. And, and Jesus would have been, of course, led down the longest path possible from the city to Golgotha. Because you see, the Roman soldiers wanted as many people to see what was going on as could see. Because they wanted to instill in the people a sense of fear that this is what's going to happen to you if you cross the Romans. And so it was sort of a, a, a deterrent to crime in one sense, to sort of march Christ uh, through the whole city. And of course, that would have been very taxing upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he is, he's, he's weakened from being beaten, uh, probably, like I said, lost a lot of blood, and he was unable to continue carrying the cross. And I think in most of our minds, we think of Christ falling under the weight of the beam. I, I don't know if that happened or not. But nonetheless, he, he just couldn't go on any further. Uh, I think it's interesting, as, as one person pointed out, they said, as God, Jesus was sustaining all things, even the bodies and lives of the soldiers surrounding him. But as a man, he was too weak to carry his own cross. He could not, in his human nature, reach across the chasm to his divine nature and borrow strength and power uh, no, Jesus was fully God, but he suffered as you and I did, as people, as a man, fully a man. And if we had gone through this and experienced what Christ has experienced, I mean, that's exactly his experience, was as a man. And so the, the, the Roman soldiers, it says in verse 21, compelled a passerby. Now that word compelled commonly is used of coercing slaves and animals into work. It's forcing somebody to do something they didn't want to do. And I'm sure Simon of Cyrene, who was the person who they coerced, uh, did not want to carry the cross. Most people didn't want anything to do with crucifixions and, and the cross. Simon of Cyrene. That means he was from the north coast of Africa. So here's a man who... He was from out of town. He's coming in from the country. Maybe he, that's where he was staying. Jerusalem may have already been filled up because of the Passover. And so he was coming in uh, to, from the country where he's staying into the city. We don't know. But he's forced to carry Christ's cross when he didn't want to. Now, I, it's interesting. And I, I really had never th thought about this that much this, until this week when I was studying this passage. But it's commonly believed that, that Simon had an encounter uh, of, of, of God's grace, that God showed his grace to Simon's family. Let me explain where, where I get that. Now, Simon's name is, is mentioned in the other synoptic gospels, in Matthew and Luke as well. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention Simon and the encounter of him carrying the cross. But here in Mark's gospel, we see two other names connected to Simon in verse 21, Alexander and Rufus. Now, one thing about Mark, I hope you've 
picked up by now is Mark is not a person who gives a lot of details. He's like, let's get moving. Let me just get to the bottom line. Let me just share with you the bottom line. Most American businessmen would love the gospel of Mark, right? You just give me the, the cliff notes. Let's move on. But Mark actually gives us more details here as he talks about Alexander and Ruth, Rufus. The, the names are presented here almost as though Simon is unknown to Mark's readers, but Alexander and Rufus are known to Mark's readers. You know, the Bible really doesn't say anything more about Alexander, but if you look over to Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, uh, you'll see that there is a Rufus who was a member of the church in Rome in the mid-50s. Okay, let me read Romans 16, 13. Paul says, Greet Rufus, a chosen, excuse me, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And, and it's very possible, and I, I would say this is probably the case, and this is probably why Mark includes this, uh, that he adds this phrase, the father of Alexander and Rufus, because he's saying, you know, providentially, uh, by coincidence, these two sons of Simon were members of your church in Rome. And it was his, their dad was the one who picked up the cross beam and carried the cross for Christ. Now, as I said earlier, we, we don't know if that is certain, 100%, but it, it, it makes sense that that is why Mark includes that in his gospel. But I want you to see here God's great love, even as he is suffering. And, 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 and we do know that Christ continued to minister and Christ continued to show his love to others even up until the very end. I mean, you think about the thief on the cross. Christ is continuing to bring people into his kingdom. Even as Christ is on the cross, he's concerned that his mother is taken care of, and so he entrusts her to his beloved disciple John so that she would be provided for after Christ was died, after he died. And so Simon and his family were most likely recipients of God's grace. But, but regardless, Simon is carrying Christ's cross and he brings it up to Golgotha and he drops it on the ground and they take Christ and they throw him on the cross beam and they drive the spikes into his hands and then the beam is raised up by these four, four soldiers and it's attached to the beam that's already in the ground and they fasten the cross beam to the post and then they take Jesus' knee, uh, feet and they nail those to the cross most likely one long spike that went between both of his feet, and there he hung not far off the ground. Now I know pictures of Christ show him raised way high, and you know maybe that was the case, but it was more likely that the crosses were just a few inches off the ground. And so those who walked by could mock those that were hanging on the cross. They could, they could see them, they could, could spit in their face, and they could mock them. And so there Jesus hangs, not far off the ground. And I'm sure he repeatedly struggled, like most uh, people did that were hung on the cross. They were to raise themselves so that they could catch a breath. And yet they would then slump down because they were exhausted as they hung on the cross. Well, the place of execution, Golgotha, was this rock, you know, pretty bare. That's where it gets the name, the, the skull. 
Uh, some people want to refer to this as Calvary. Actually, the word Calvary is never found in the Bible. It actually comes from the Latin word that means scalp or bald head. Okay, so it, it does make sense that we would use that word Calvary, but Golgotha is, is the biblical term for it. And we read that when he, was, when he arrived there in verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Now that may sound very yucky to us. Really, you're going to put perfume in your wine? That just doesn't sound good. But actually, this was a, a drink that was given to those that were executed. The women of Jerusalem actually gave this drink to those that were being executed because it was a, sort of a, a narcotic that was used to try to deaden the pain so that the crucifixion wasn't quite so intense. And, and really, it really comes from Proverbs 3, verse 16. Proverbs 3.16 says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. As a matter of fact, it had become so common a practice that it was described in the Talmud, the, the writings of the Jews of that day. But it's interesting that although it was offered to Jesus, he refused it. Uh, Jesus didn't want even as much as an aspirin or a Tylenol to alleviate his ministry. Instead, he accepts the suffering and the punishment we deserve, fully aware of his surroundings, fully experiencing all the pain and the torment for us. Besides, I, you know, if you look at all that, has, that takes place on the cross, you see that if Christ had taken this drink and it had dulled him and uh, affected his uh, thinking and stuff, then he maybe couldn't have had the conversation with the thief on the cross or spoken to John about Jesus' mother or he, he couldn't have spoken the, the seven last words of Christ upon the cross. And yet Christ suffered for us. Christ is giving. He's, he's ministering to others. He's suffering a pain beyond comprehension. He's, he's, he's loving his Father and experiencing the full wrath of God. He's, he's loving those. He's loving us that he came to save. You see, brothers and sisters, the cross reveals the love of God as nothing else in the universe. And I hope we remember that this morning. Even though we might be desensitized to all the violence and, and the death and the things that go on in the world around us and We've heard about the cross all of our lives as we've grown up in the church. May we never be desensitized to the love of God that has been shown to us. We must passionately weave this truth in the fibers of our consciences for our soul's sake, especially as we live our lives that our, our hearts might be given in praise and thanks to God, that it would give us resolve to stand against sin and trust in Him. We must never fall into the, the delusion of thinking that, that suffering was not as great for, for Jesus because the ontological fact that He was God. We must never do that. He suffered as a man. He suffered among men in total dependence upon the Father, and His pain was alleviated by absolutely nothing. He, he experienced it all. As if that's not bad enough, then we see in verses 24 
that Jesus died on the cross naked and shamed. Most images of, of crucifixions don't, don't show this, that Christ was naked on the, the cross. Um, I would argue that's a good reason why we shouldn't have images of Christ. There's <laughs> other good reasons too. But um, this verse in Mark 24, where it talked about uh, how they crucified him and divided the, his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take, is actually a prophecy from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, and and this verse in in, in Mark uh, showed showing that the shameful death of Jesus really fulfills the prototype of the suffering righteous man of Psalm twenty-two, showing us that Christ not only suffered physically, but he was ridiculed and he was shamed upon the cross as well. You see, the realness of the cross says to us, brothers and sisters. We are loved. Do you know that love this morning? Do you know that your Father in heaven loves you? Do you know that His Son sees you as precious in His sight? That His Spirit loves you? You are loved. The second thing that Christian the crucifixion reveals as Christ's lordship. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now, Jesus' uh, persecutors were not aware of the love that Christ was showing. All they knew is that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Verse 25 and 26. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. Now, John's gospel account tells us and highlights the fact that that inscription made the chief priest very upset. Matter of fact, in John 19, 21, we read this. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, or this man claimed, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate looked at them and he answered and he said, What I have written, I have written. In other words, what he's literally saying is, what I have written will always remain written. It is so. It cannot be changed. You see, Jesus' royal title of king is fixed to the cross, and no one can remove it. Not even the religious leaders of that day. And, and if, if you remember, when I first started this series of Mark last year, uh, I told you that the title of this series is The King's Cross. The King's Cross. Because that's what we see in Mark's Gospel. That Jesus is King. He is the Messiah. And as we've, if we looked, went through the first part of Mark, we just showed over and over and over how it pointed to Christ as King. And yet, we also see that, that Mark's Gospel points us to the cross where the King suffered an agonizing death for his people. Now, our king will not always be upon the cross. I mean, we get other pictures of our kings, glorious pictures from the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 19, uh, verse 12. Revelation 19, 12. We see that, that one day Jesus, who's called the faithful and true, he'll come on a white horse, and those still present, well, this is what they'll see. And it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire and his head and on his head are many diadems kids that means crowns there's lots of crowns on his head 
and, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And here is this king on the cross. Now, I don't think we think of Christ as king on the cross, but as one commentator put, put it so well, they said virtually every New Testament reference to Jesus' rule is accompanied by a reference to his cross. Virtually every New Testament reference to Jesus' rule is accompanied by a reference to his cross. And so this morning as we think about the cross, as we think about Christ on the cross, let us not forget it was the king who was on the cross. That, that in all these things... Christ was still in control, even though these things were being done to him. And it doesn't, Mark doesn't talk so much about what Christ is, but he talks about what's being done to Christ. He still is the king who, who rules over all. And so let us worship him this morning with the words of that great hymn of old. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. You see, the, the crucifixion not only proclaims Christ's love as, as nothing else could, but it also shouts, he rules! And what he does, and what he did on the cross is love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. And if you're here this morning and you see the love of Christ, you must also recognize his demands upon your life as well. He is your king. He is my king. And he rules over our lives. You see, Christ on the cross is not just a prayer meeting Jesus or a storybook Jesus, but he is God incarnate who has come to rule. He is God who saves and God who rules over us. And he wants absolute devotion to himself. The third thing we see about the crucifixion is that it reveals Christ's substitutionary atonement. In other words, kids, Christ took our place and he paid for our sins. That's what that means. Uh, as though the crucifixion were, were not enough, we read in verses 27 through 32 of just the, the verbal abuse that Christ received. It says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, now I'm guessing kids, wagging is like shaking your head, right? Ah, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourselves and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross 
that we may see and believe. That actually wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have believed. But anyway, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so here's Christ uh, on the cross. He's being uh, crucified between two robbers. And so Isaiah 53, 12 is, is true. He was numbered amongst the transgressors. But he has a, a thief on his left and on his right. Now we don't know much about those thieves. It might be because he took the place of, because Jesus took the place of Barabbas, that these maybe were two of Barabbas's captains. Maybe they were participants in the insurrection and the rebellion against Rome. And so Christ was dying with them. We don't know who they were, but they were not good men, to say the least. They, they were robbers and uh, thieves. You know, one thing that we see as we see Christ hanging there on the cross between these sinful men is we are reminded that in one sense, all of Christ's life was an identification with sinners. All the way back to his baptism as he's standing there in the Jordan, standing in line to be baptized by John the Baptist. You know, these sinners were waiting to be cleansed. And of course, Christ wasn't dirty. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to be cleansed. Uh, but we need to be cleansed by the waters of baptism. And he was identifying with those who were sinners. But Jesus, uh, he not only lived uh, an identification with sinners, but now he is dying the same way. Donald MacLeod, a, a Scottish preacher, he said this, he said, he, that is Jesus, is not just among these people. He's not just among these people. He is together with them, experiencing their condemnation, sharing their guilt, and deserving, or so it seems, their fate. He did that not because uh, of his sin, but because of us. He doesn't merely bear our sin. He becomes it, cursed of man and cursed of God. And so here we see Jesus exposed to mockery and rejection. And I want you to think about that this morning. Verse 29, And those who passed by derided, derided him. They, they mocked him. They, they're, they're shaking their heads. And, and they're saying, you, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Okay, that's true, then save yourself and come down from the cross. Just everyday Jews were walking by, mocking him, mocking him. Then come the priests. The, you know, these are the, the elite, the, the religious men. Verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. Yeah, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. He saved others, you know, why can't he save himself? But you see, that's the whole point this morning. Because he was determined to save others, he wouldn't save himself. It's not that Christ couldn't save himself, he wouldn't save himself because he wanted to save us. And finally, to add insult into injury, then we read in verse 32 how even those who were being crucified with him reviled him. Kids, that, that means to vilify or to, to abuse Jesus with their words. They, they were shouting at him. They were making fun of him. They were railing against him. They were mocking him and insulting him. 
But Jesus is here dying not because he deserved it, because he, but he's dying for his people. Even for those who mocked him. You know, I, I think uh, Psalm 1 went, uh, is what came to mind when I thought about that. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, or those who mock Christ. But you know what? In one sense, we were all those people. That's who we were. And it was out of that that Christ called us to come and to be His children, to be His beloved. It's not that we were good enough for Christ to call us. We were those people. And, and that should give us great confidence as we share our faith with other people that even those that we think are pretty scoundrels, we should be confident that God can save them. If He has saved you, He can save them. But I think, honestly, believers, we, especially those of us who have grown up in the church, we don't think we were that bad. And so we wonder if God has the ability to save the most wicked of wicked. But that is not a correct view of God, nor is that a correct view of ourselves. Remember what the angel said to Joseph before Jesus was born in Matthew 1. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Our Savior is great enough to save anybody he chooses to save. And as their king, as their representative, as their substitute, out of love, Jesus dies on the cross in their place. He died in the cross for our place. Does that move you this morning? Does that move you to worship? Does that fuel the fire of your heart in gratitude to God for what He has done? Have you seen the glory of Christ on the cross? Do you see what, what Simon saw in Jesus? Do you see what the thief in the cross that repented saw in Jesus? Or, or do you look at Jesus on the cross and you think, yeah, 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 well, Pastor Rick, let's wrap this up. It's getting close to 12. It's time to go home. Kids, Young people, you've, you've pretty much grown up in the church. I know your parents. They are teaching you of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus just something you talk about in church? Or is Jesus real? Kids, are you trusting in Christ alone? Do you see that you are a sinner and you need a Savior? And are you trusting Him? You see, the vast majority of the world sees their Creator, God's Son, on the cross, and they see nothing, and they feel nothing. But what Christ went through helps us to see what God thinks of sin. This is what God thinks of you and me by nature, and this is what we deserve. And so God is preaching salvation to us today. 
sort of reminds me of a story I, I read one time about Donald Barnhouse. He was a, a preacher of old, uh, a great uh, preacher of the gospel, Presbyterian minister. He actually was the minister before James Montgomery Boyce at 10th Press. And, and on a Saturday morning, he was in a study, and he was working, and the custodian came in and said, hey, there's a, a man out here to see you. And he, he gave uh, Reverend Barnhouse the man's business card, and, uh, and he looked at it, and he realized that he was the captain of the largest passenger uh, vessel that was, um, had been built in that day. And so he was a pretty important captain. And so Donald Barnhouse, holding the card, went out to meet the man, and the captain said, uh, you have a very beautiful church here. And Dr. Barnhouse said, well, yeah, we're very thankful for what the Lord has provided to those who have come before us. And, and the captain said, it's, it's very much like the Basilica in, in Italy. And Dr. Barnhouse said, yeah, well, you know, actually it's uh, a copy, an architectural duplicate. And we actually had people come over from Italy to come and, and to work on this. And then Dr. Barnhouse looked at him and he says, but that's not what you came to talk about. He said, you didn't come to talk about the architecture, did you? And the captain said, well, no. He said, 23 times a year, he goes, I sail the Atlantic. And he said, when I come down the bank of Newfoundland, he goes, I hear your broadcast out of Boston. And so as I came this week, I thought to myself, you know, I got a 24-hour layover in New York. Why don't I get on a train and I go down and meet Dr. Barnhouse? And so he goes, here I am. And Dr. Barnhouse looked at him, and this is just the kind of guy Dr. Barnhouse was. He looked at him and he said, sir, have you been born again? Now, how many of us would have said that? How many of us would have said that in a conversation? But he said, have you been born again? And the captain replied, and he goes, well, that's what I came to talk to you about. And by this time, uh, they had walked through the church a ways, and they had reached the prayer room, and there was a chalkboard there. And so Dr. Barnhouse uh, draws three crosses on the chalkboard. And underneath the first one, he wrote N. And underneath the third one, he wrote N. And underneath the middle cross, he wrote not N. And he said to the man, he goes, do you understand what I mean when I say those men who died with Jesus uh, had sin within them? And the captain said, yes, I do. But he said, but Christ didn't have sin in him. That's why you wrote not N. And he goes, that's right. Then over the first cross and the third cross, he wrote on. And he said to the man, do you understand what I mean by on? And the captain sort of wrinkled his brow and he goes, I, I don't quite understand. And Dr. Barnhouse said, well, let me illustrate. He goes, have you ever run a red light? And the captain said, well, yes. And he goes, well, were you caught? And he said, no. And Dr. Barnhouse said, well... In running that red light, you had sin in you. He goes, if you would have been caught, you would have had sin on you. So, so here, the thieves bear the penalty of God. They have their sin on them, and they are under condemnation. He goes, then he wrote another on over Jesus' cross and said, the one thief's sins rested on Christ." by virtue of his faith in Christ. Then Dr. Barnhouse looked at the captain and he said, which thief are you? Well, this, was a, this captain was a tall, distinguished British man and 
he stood there for a moment and he looked at Dr. Barnhouse and he began to, to fight back the tears. And he said to Dr. Barnhouse, he goes, by the grace of God, he says, I'm the first man. And, and Dr. Barnhouse, wanting to make sure he understood, says, you mean your sins are on Jesus? And he said, yes. God says my sins are on Jesus. And then he put out his hand and, and uh, he shook Dr. Barnhouse's hand. And he said, that's why I came to find out. Well, Dr. Barnhouse invited him to lunch and shared the gospel more. And, and this man left the return to New York as, as a, a glowing Christian. All of us, all of us are like thieves. We have sin in us. We are, are like one of the thieves. We are divided as were the two thieves. Some of us have the penalty of sin resting on us and others have by grace had had it lifted over to Christ that our sins are no longer on us but they are on Christ. Is your sin on you or on Christ? That's the question. If you are here this morning or if you're listening via the live stream and, and your sins are not upon Christ, I want to encourage you in several ways. First, just behold this man of suffering. Observe how great his love is. And tell Jesus that you love him for what he has done for you. Second, behold the king. See Christ as king and that his demands, he is calling you to yield to him. But then third, understand that he died to take away your sins. And so you are called to acknowledge your sins and, and to trust that now your sins are not upon you, but that you, they are upon him. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, let us thank Him. Let us thank God for His wonderful love, for His rule over our lives, and for His great forgiveness of our sins. Please bow with me if you would. Lord, we thank you so much for these words and this account, Lord, that, that just tells of your mighty and great work on, on our behalf as your people. And Father, I pray that this week that we would think a lot about this as we live our lives, as we uh, are tempted by Satan, Lord, as we are pressed by the circumstances of, of this world, may, may we be reminded of, of your love and your rule and your forgiveness. And may that, that compel us, Lord, in, in our obedience to you, to, to like in the same way that Christ leaned upon you as he was being crucified, as he entrusted himself to you. May we, God, turn to you and not turn away from you into sin. 
Father, I pray for those that may not know you, that they would trust you, that they would hear the words of life and respond in faith. We pray in your name. Amen.